I think we would all do well to lose ESG. If the product is required, it's best to work with that company to reduce the harm. We shouldn't fight about the term. It's not about what we call it. It's really about what we do. What is business at its best? The coronavirus pandemic has tanked the global economy with unprecedented speed. The steepness of the decline here is unprecedented. This is a crisis that is unprecedented. It is unprecedented and we just don't know. This is Beyond Unprecedented, the post-pandemic economy a limited series podcast from Columbia Law School and the Ira M. Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership. I'm Eric Talley, Salzbecker Professor at Columbia Law School and co-director of the Milstein Center. And I'm Tally Gillis, Associate Professor of Law and Milton Handler Fellow at Columbia Law School. Today, we'll explore the mounting pushback against the environmental, social and governance or ESG movement. We'll discuss the rise in anti-woke activism, the politicization of ESG, and what lies ahead for the debate between ESG proponents and opponents. Over the past month, we've seen a substantial increase in anti-ESG shareholder activism. These activists are demanding that corporations pull back on their environmental and social initiatives, including efforts related to climate change as well as other socially oriented goals. For example, in the 2022 proxy season, anti-ESG activists submitted a proposal calling on Intel to cease displaying the pride flag. In another example, asset management firm Strive Asset Management launched a public campaign against Apple, urging a revision of hiring and compensation policies to remove diversity considerations. This is an interesting and and quite provocative uh, story. It speaks to issues that are as small as individual um, people up through corporate entities, through national politics. I should even note that Strive Asset Management's co-founders, Vivek Ramaswamy, is now evidently a candidate for the presidential race in 2024. Um, Talia, you know, you have sort of become a law professor during sort of the era of ESG, ESG activism. How, How did you experience it sort of coming into the professoriate when it was at full throttle? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that has kind of dominated a lot of uh, conversations among students and kind of as it became more prominent then um, kind of the the other side has spoken up a little bit more and I see this amongst my students. I should mention that I've also tried to kind of implement some of these policies and gotten a bit of backlash within my house. So even within my household, I have a do well by doing good policy with my kids. So I've always told my kids that if you want to minimize or maximize the family pie, then uh, you should adopt inclusive play practices and clean up after yourself. And it's met with a lot of backlash. So I say even internally, if I've experienced some of this backlash. I am a wounded veteran of similar campaigns. But, you know, the, the thing that uh, is is so interesting about this, this topic is just, uh, just how far reaching it can be in just about any domain. And, you know, I, I think, you know, when, today we're going to try to think through some of those issues. And I can't think of anyone better than our guests today, uh, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild and Jeff Ubbin. Uh, Lynn is a founding and and managing partner of Inclusive Capital Partners, a San Francisco-based investment management firm that seeks to positively leverage capitalism and governance in pursuit of healthy planet, uh, ecology, as well as the well-being of its inhabitants. Lynn's also the founder of the Coalition for Inclusive Capitalism and the Council for Inclusive uh, Capitalism and a director of the uh, Estee Lauder Companies and Nicola Corporation. 
She's also a graduate of Columbia Law School. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you to Columbia Law School. Uh, good to be with you. And our second guest is Jeff Ubbin, the founder of Portfolio Manager and Managing Partner of Inclusive Capital Partners. He's a director of Inviva Incorporated, Fertiglobe PLC, and famously ExxonMobil Corporation. He sits on the board of Duke University and the World Wildlife Fund, the Redford Center, and the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Jeff, welcome to the show. Terrific to be here. I am not running for president. <laughs> not yet, at least. Before we get into the anti-ESG movement as it is, uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about the, the genesis of, of the ESG movement and what its precursors were. So back in the previous century when I was in law school, the idea of socially responsible investing was definitely all the rage, but eventually it, it you know, sort of quieted down some, and, and many of its social goals related to diversity, stakeholder values, and so forth, have been adopted and more with, uh, with the ESG movement. From your perspective, let me start with you, Jeff. How did you come to sort of understand and intersect with the ESG movement? I was part of the problem, in my opinion. Uh, for 20 years, I was an, a shareholder activist. Uh, and, you know, we fo focused on financial metrics, primarily, exclusively, less cost, more profit, you know, more efficient balance sheet. If we can get the company sold to private equity, all the better. And, you know, I did that until the point where I figured that I was in the wrong neighborhood. That board served just one constituent, the shareholder. And I thought that was very much part of the problem. It shortened up time horizons. It also became much less interesting to me. Stock prices had gone up a lot to reflect very high sustainable margins that may or may not be sustainable going forward. And so there was much less return attached to financial engineering. The value proposition aligned really well with this new form of, of governance called stakeholder governance, where if you focus on your carbon footprint or the way you treat your workers and customers, that that very well could be the next 20 years of good governance and high returns. And then ultimately system change happens and capitalism becomes a force for good as it always was supposed to be. Lynn, let me let me uh, bring you into this. I mean, one of the things that I still circulate to my students is this very famous New York Times Magazine article by Milton Friedman that is now over 50 years old basically saying, hey, you should be unapologetic about maximizing for shareholder value. Now, it was in an era where there was, there was a, a, you know, a larger number of regulatory guardrails uh, that, uh, that companies uh, faced. And, and that has changed as well during much of the 1980s. But you know, certainly as you were going into law school, the, the idea of you know, maximize shareholder value, that's what corporations was all about. That was definitely something that I suspect you encountered pretty frequently when you were a student at, at Columbia. How did you then intersect with uh, the ESG movement or what has become the ESG movement? When that Milton Friedman article came out, we also lived in a different society. We lived in a different world. First of all, we believe that a rising tide would lift all boats. Second of all, we also believed that companies and the capital markets, they were by definition a force for good. So the, there was no talk of ESG. There just were companies behaving in the right way. And I think one way that your students should think about going forward is not to think in terms of, am I for ESG or against ESG? 
what they really should think about is who, which companies are profitably solving the problems of people and planet and are part of the solution and not part of the problem. And I think we would all do well to lose ESG, frankly, because it's turned into this um, S show uh, that political um, grifters are taking on. So why do we need to fight about the term? We shouldn't fight about the term. We should think about what is business at its best. So from my point of view, I'm happy to lose the ESG debate. I'm happy to bury ESG. And let's get back to what are the businesses of the future? How are shareholders going to make the most money with the best companies? Basically, we, we imported ESG from Europe. They are a shining light in thinking about these other constituencies, but ESG, the way they executed it was very exclusionary. It was, it was, there's good and there's bad. And, you know, that's not the way the world works. There's this gray area where you deal with companies that are in the problem that are most likely if inspired with different forms of governance and for, in some cases, new CEOs to be part of the solution to decarbonize now even as they're providing an essential good or service, whether it's energy or food or education for that matter. So ESG 1.0, as Lynn said, should be thrown out because it doesn't really, this kind of exclusionary approach, if the product is required, it doesn't make sense to divest from the company that makes that product. It's best to work with that company to reduce the harm or reduce the carbon you know, in, in that particular case. That's the future of ESG, that's ESG 2.0. That's really where Inclusive started. We were unafraid to buy things that were boycotted. Also because those, those, those stock prices tended to be low and that's, that's kind of the currency with which we work. And the other thing that I think happened with ESG is, is not only the, the real negative impact of, of exclusionary investment uh, policies that were, were not well thought through, but also the hypocrisy uh, around the ESG movement. People, there were 635 quote ESG funds and um, you know firms and famously one was BlackRock. They basically had an ESG ETF that charged 40 basis points more than its S&P ETF, but essentially had the same stocks in it. So of course people are gonna get cynical and they're right to get cynical. It became a product, it became a label. So let's get back to you know, finding those companies that are really long-term great investments uh, because of what they do for society and the environment. Is there a sense in which um, you know, part of the current back backlash is in fact a response to, to version 1.0? Was that in 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 any way, maybe a miscalculation of version 1.0? It was transparent that the asset managers were using it for marketing purposes and marketing purposes only. And therefore they kind of deserve what, they, what they're getting. That being said, ESG 1.0 did serve an important purpose. It changed the agenda in a boardroom and it put things like customer health, worker health, environmental issues into the conversation. I swear I've been on 20 public company boards and until 2019, none of those issues 
ever were raised. And I was complicit, by the way, you know? So the boardroom is now different. The investor class either marketed their way through it by gathering assets with a kind of a bullshit product, as Lynn says, or they ran away, or they are essentially causing friction whereby companies that able to be part of the solution are being asked to do massive share repurchase still, as opposed to keeping the cash because the energy transition is going to be expensive. And big oil companies, for instance, have tremendous capabilities to be part of the energy transition, to decarbonize now. And that tension where investors would rather that the company just return the cash to really not allow them to be a company in the future, but to stay a company of the past, that's the tension I find most interesting. That is the gray zone uh, that I that I seek with regards to like real investment change, real capital allocation change. This is a really hard thing. And I think what's happened is people like BlackRock told you it was easy. And that's bad because people, consumers, investors need to know this is hard. This is really hard. You can't just buy an ETF and think you did something. And that's that's the shame of ESG 1.0, which is why it set itself up. So what about the connection to the larger political debates? Um, We've recently seen heightened politicization around ESG. States opposed to corporate environmental and social policies have used legislation, divestment, and regulatory investigations to limit um, or block firms from considering ESG factors. So for example, last fall, Florida and other Republican-controlled states announced that they were withdrawing state funds from BlackRock due to its ESG initiatives. Um, Using a new state law, Texas banned 10 firms from doing business with the state on the ground that the blacklisted firms allegedly boycott fossil fuel companies. And in January, 21 Republican attorney generals um, sent a letter to two big proxy advisory firms in the U.S. challenging their climate and diversity policies. Um, So how are companies and investors navigating this growing politicization of ESG? Well, first of all, those states that have banned the firms that have focused on ESG, those states are paying more for their debt because they have less access to debt providers. And so it's not a it's not a great policy for those states to follow. I think with respect to investors, again, they have to stay the course. And although I was critical of BlackRock for commoditizing the ESG phenomenon through a more expensive ETF. I think they are getting a bad rap in the case of these states because BlackRock is doing what Jeff said. BlackRock is funding the fossil fuel industry and they are not voting for ridiculous proxy proposals that might be well-intentioned, but on this transition to a cleaner, more inclusive future, companies have got to allocate their capital correctly. They have to be profitable. They have to run their businesses in a prudent way. I think the black and white states, or let's call them red and blue states perhaps, are missing the mark and they're not serving their pensioners. They're not gonna create greater value for the people who need the funds that are being invested. And they're not really achieving a rational business end. 
I said this is hard. A large part of me is is I live my life as a joyful pessimist because we've politicized everything uh, and polarized everything. If you sit there in your big oil company and you lose a proxy contest because you wouldn't say you're net zero, and then you say you're net zero and people say you're greenwashing, and the difference is there's a lot of science to be done to see if you could be a net zero company. The politicians are too short-term, investors are too short-term, and the NGOs, they view the world in a purest way, and they cause as much problem as the other two. That's super interesting. I love the term joyful pessimist. And I think, Jeff Aubin, you and I should hang out because I consider myself a sad optimist. I take the words of Madeleine Albright, an optimist who worries. (laughs) All right, so so there's another angle on this that I'd like to get your thoughts on. One of the arguments you're increasingly hearing uh, now, I guess, by conservative lawmakers and anti-ESG activists is that business shouldn't be meddling in public policy, right? Businesses should be staying out of politics, uh, that, uh, that they should really be sticking to their knitting on running their business and not trying to um, you know, affect broader um, policy changes outside of that narrow scope. Where do you come down on this question of what role, if any, uh, corporate actors play in the larger political realm? The two most celebrated ESG industries, uh, ESG 1.0, are healthcare and social media because they don't carbon emit. The two biggest lobbyists in Washington are healthcare and social media. The worst outcomes in the world for the highest cost system in, the, in, in, in this country is our healthcare system. So it's clearly predatory, it doesn't work. All the energy goes into fossil fuels, you know, uh, who obviously have been lobbying their, their own way through this, this thing. So, I mean, I kind of agree with you to a certain extent, if we would just get these guys out of Washington, it would be much, much better. Big energy companies are spending time in Washington, contrary to, you know, the hyperbole from a Greenpeace, they really do want a carbon price. They want a price signal because carbon abatement is a reinvestment opportunity and fossil fuels is a mature business. So instead of sending cash back to shareholders because your business is maturing and declining over time, it's a much more interesting place to work if you have a a place to put your cash and carbon management economy is coming. The big oil guys in Washington trying like crazy to get a carbon price, which actually destroys demand for their core product Surprisingly, they are all over this and are trying to make this happen, and the politicians are too afraid. They, they think they're too short-term. They think they're going to get voted out of office. The CEOs of these companies really are at the center of change. They have the 15-year-old child at home tell, calling them a polluter, and the investor class is a bit of the problem, and the po- policy makers are also, of course, a bit of the problem because they're too short term. This is a very long term challenge. So I think that's a really interesting angle to answer your question, Eric, because corporations are deeply involved in in government and policy and politics for their own end. How should or should corporations be involved in political or social Uh, discussions. I've thought a lot about this because, for instance, 
Mark Benioff famously said he was going to move out of Indiana if they put their anti-gay legislation through. And the legislation got stopped because they were afraid of corporate behavior. He took a social stand. I was in favor of that. I think that is very brave, but not everybody would agree. And this is where I think a board is really important. The Georgia voting law. I mean, that was a law that was going to keep people away from the polls. And you have big companies like Delta and, and Coke based in Georgia, and they had to decide whether they were going to, in that case, stand up for democracy, not because one is Republican or Democrat, just because we cannot function um, in business if our society is torn apart because we've lost democracy. So I think there are lots of interesting questions for boards about how far do we go. I think it's for every company to decide, and I, th and then I think it's for customers to decide what they think of that company, which I think was very much on Mark Benioff's mind. He knew who his audience was. And I think it's customers and investors to decide. Jeff and Lynn, we want to wrap up with a crystal ball question. What are your predictions on the long-term prospects for ESG proponents versus opponents? Will the anti-ESG movement prove largely to be theater without much lasting impact? Or will this growing standoff between pro and anti-ESG movements ultimately change how companies and investors approach environmental and social issues in the long term? I think ESG goes away. I, I think what you're going to see is the ESG, you know, buy already green companies at really high prices in 2021, the performance of that product is going to be bad. Those of us that look, look more at the ambiguity of the situation and took on the challenge of fundraising with an ESG fund that owns Exxon, for instance, our returns are going to be better. And over time, everybody's going to invest this way. They're going to find companies that are cheap for whatever reason. In the case of Exxon, it was because they were a carbon emitter. And then if they can make the company more investable through engagement, their returns will be better. And we'll have one investment style, which is the stakeholder model where you have to consider all of these constituencies because there's value to be created in doing so. And the uh, supremacy that that margins and other kind of issues around financial engineering, that starts to wane because these are, these are imperatives. And if companies that can solve the climate and income inequality imperative, will get the highest valuations. Um, and if they start as a company that's considered uh, part of the problem and you make them less part of the problem or you make them part of the solution, your returns will be great. So ESG will disappear for all the right reasons and it'll, it'll be about how do you drive long-term returns at your companies. I agree that ESG will go away. And I agree in the context of a rose by any other name shall smell as sweet. I think we can drop ESG and go back to what is business at its best. And business at its best serves its customers, it serves its workers, it serves its communities, and it creates great returns or you know decent returns for shareholders and i think that should be our focus it's not about what we call it it's really about what we do 
want to thank uh, both of you for an engaging podcast. You bet. Cheers. Thanks, guys. So happy to be back with Columbia. Our guests today were Lynn Forrester de Rothschild and Jeff Ubbin. Join us next time for another episode of Beyond Unprecedented and make sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond Unprecedented is brought to you by Columbia Law School and the Ira M. Milstein Center for Global Markets and Corporate Ownership. This podcast is produced by the Office of Communications, Marketing, and Public Affairs at Columbia Law School. Our executive producer is Michael Petullo. Julie Godso, Carrie Midland, and Martha Moore are producers. Editing and engineering by Jake Rosati. Special thanks to Erica Mitnick-Klein and Molly Calkins at the Milstein Center, with research assistance from Alice LeGron. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about law, the economy, and society, visit us at law.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.